0: The Jewish Views on Tackling Online Hate, How Will Finding Social Media Companies Improve the Vitriol Faced by Jews Worldwide, Wit and Whimsy, composer and lyricist Alexander Bermange, talks about the forthcoming release of his new album, and the Jewish Volunteering Network tell us why they want you to volunteer in Israel for Pesach.
1: But first, with a roundup of the Jewish news this week, I'm Vivian Krieger. And we begin with the row about a French photographer's red triangle warning sign of an Orthodox man, which was placed on a lamppost in Stamford Hill, close to a synagogue. Fran Gallet, the photographer, said it was part of an artistic project, but he's now apologised for the stunt, which had caused distress and alarm amongst local Jewish people. He said it was not intended to be anti-Semitic. However, Hackney MP Diane Abbott called it unacceptable and Stephen Silverman from the campaign against anti-Semitism called it a hateful incident. Germany's justice minister has proposed that social media sites which fail to quickly remove illegal content such as hate speech or defamatory fake news should be fined up to £44 million. Heiko Maas claims Twitter deletes just 1% of illegal content flagged up by users, while Facebook deletes 39%. His suggested bill, which was welcomed by the World Jewish Congress, could go before German politicians ahead of the country's general election in September. A ruling by the European Union which allows firms to stop employees wearing religious clothes and symbols has been condemned by Jewish leaders who say it might isolate minorities and send a message to Muslims and Jews that they're no longer welcome – the ruling in Luxembourg's Court of Justice came as a result of two lawsuits filed by Muslim employees who were sacked for wearing headscarves. Two Jewish schools have announced joint entry expansion plans to cater for increased demand. JFS and the Jewish Community Secondary School, or JCOS combined will offer an additional 90 places from September 2018 onwards, providing funding can be agreed. And finally, the American firm Intel is to make the largest ever purchase of an Israeli high-tech company. The driverless technology firm Mobileye, which employs 600 people, will cost Intel £12 billion. The company and its research programme will remain based in Israel. That's the news this week. Here's the sport, presented by Andrew.
2: Thank you, Viv. London Lions under-21 manager Joe Zender fancies his side's chances of winning the Peter Morrison trophy after he saw them claim the biggest cup upset of the football season. Defeating the club's A-team in a dramatic penalty shootout, the side, who boast an average age of just 17, have now knocked out two Premier Division sides and are one win away from the final. Israeli basketball fans were reportedly assaulted as they watched their team take on Spanish side Valencia during a Euro Cup match on Tuesday night. The 30 supporters clashed with police, with journalists who witnessed the scenes at the Valencia Arena saying they were only attacked because they were Israeli. And finally, Israel's run at the World Baseball Classic Tournament is over, after they were beaten by Japan in Tokyo. Played in front of 40,000 people. The team, who were ranked 41st in the world, were making their debut in the competition and overcame all the odds to reach the second round, having won their three pool games. Remember, you can catch up on all the latest Jewish
0: sports at jewishnews.co.uk. Andrew, thank you very much indeed. Well, welcome along to this edition of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave. Let's start off as we always do with a look through your copy of The Jewish News for this week. Joining me to go through it is Features Editor Fran Wolfish and Online Editor Jack Mendel. Welcome to you both. I suppose that we should take a glance at the front page and there are two stories technically on the front page this week but let's start off with the main one and that is about Jewish schools coming up with a plan for further expansion of some Description.
3: Well, we've known about this issue for quite a while. The ongoing issue, obviously, that there needs to be more school places. There's so many children being left disappointed year on year. Thankfully, this year... JCOS and JFS have pledged to offer extra places. I believe there will be 30 extra places at JCOS and 60 at JFS from September 2018. Providing funding can be agreed. This can only be a good thing. It will obviously ease the pressure on the system, but I think it highlights again that there probably is a need still for another secondary school and there is there are movements towards perhaps another additional secondary school being built in the years to come. Barcai and Kavanagh have now also announced that they are merging their plans to provide a new Jewish secondary school rather than having two separate applications. So hopefully that will be successful. And we do hope that in years to come that there will be another Jewish secondary school.
0: See, of course, the other problem is, though, that where you say that it relieve some of the pressure on the system. The interesting point in all of this is it will apply additional pressure, one would assume, on the two schools in question. And I don't even really remember or understand how we got to this almost near critical mass stage of where we're suddenly running out of places in Jewish schools.
4: Well, I I think the problem with Jewish schools at the moment is twofold. One is denominations, and two is location. So you have a lot of uh, religious schools that have places, but people don't want to go to them because they don't fit into that denomination. And you have schools that were set up 50 or 60 years ago, and people have moved away. People moved, you know, from from Essex, they've moved to Boreham Wood. They don't want to go to a school in Essex anymore. So I think there are lots of places. It's just, are people willing to take them up? And because JFS is so kind of central in North London, and they provide transport, you can get there, and JCOS is... You know, it's a growing school. People want to go to this kind of new, vibrant, growing community. I think the community needs to make a decision. You, you have a lot of these declining schools. Either they need to be shut down and reallocated somewhere. The resources need to be reallocated or there needs to be an extra effort to get people to move to areas where there are existing Jewish schools.
0: It's interesting, though, that what you were saying about nobody wants to go to a school, say, for example, in Essex anymore, because the truth is there is still very much a Jewish community in Essex. But it is almost as if they are, should we say, bucking the trend compared to northwest London, where it would appear that most Jewish homes want to send their children to Jewish schools. It's really strange how divided it seems to be.
3: Also, I think we should make the point that there has been this expansion westwards where Jews are going west. Whereas, you know, 20, 30 years ago, there were lots of Jews in Golders Green, Hendon, Finchley, all those kind of areas. As property prices have gone up, we've seen families moving further and further out west and Borenwood is, as we've seen, growing, expanding. It's one of the largest, I think it is actually the largest concentration now of Jewish population. You need to start providing school places that are close to where people live. That's, that is the logic.
4: I think uh, one other thing we shouldn't forget is The main reason people want to go to JCOS and JFS is because they continuously produce really, really good results. You know, they always have a lot of A-stars and A's, and that's the main reason why even non-Jewish students are now trying to apply there, and a lot of them are getting in now. So. I, I don't think this is going to go away. I think it's going to carry on as long as the scores keep producing these results.
0: Well, I'm sure that it will carry on and we will carry on to bring you the news as and when it happens. Having a look at the other story that features not just on the front page, but it's also inside the paper as well. There's a very striking image on the front page, though, of the lovely people who work at Jewish Care. Why are they on the front page?
3: Yes, well, we've done an investigation into what Brexit could mean for charities like Jewish Care that employ staff from different countries, specifically EU countries, obviously. And Jewish Care, for example, employs staff from 71 countries all over the world. Could Brexit affect the staffing levels that it has and the quality of staff that it's able to provide um, for the people that it cares for? having a look you know into this issue it's clear that 15% actually of Jewish care staff actually hail from the EU so you can see what a reliance it has actually on the workforce coming from these areas Will Brexit mean that people will lose their jobs? And if they lose their jobs, who's going to take the place of these carers? And what will that mean for the elderly or for disabled people and all the other people that Jewish care provides for? It could mean a real crisis. Hopefully not. Hopefully the government has thought these things through and they have come up with a plan of action.
0: I just imagine it's very easy for me to say what I'm about to say as a British citizen and a British passport holder. But surely the problem is that nobody knows what's going to happen at the moment. And we can't really be going looking at somewhere like Jewish care and just say, what are they going to do? Because one would assume that if the worst comes to the worst, and indeed there was some sort of ruling that affected the rights of EU citizens to carry on living in Britain after Brexit has officially taken place, then it's not going to be just Jewish care affected, is it? There's going to be thousands upon thousands of workers in this country affected by that.
4: Yeah, I, I think the, the the whole point about this Brexit debate is that there's a lot of uncertainty. People don't know what's going to happen in the next three years. But charities like Jewish care have to plan. You know, they, they don't just do things, turn up one day and decide let's do this or that. They have to plan. So this kind of uncertainty will kind of fly right in their face. Um, and, you know, if... if that they need staff and they know that if, if the some staff are going to be reconsidering their future because of Brexit, you know, They are going to have
0: to plan for that. They're going to have to plan ahead. Although, of course, it is important to list, though, that the 71 countries that Jewish care do employ staff from are not necessarily all EU countries. So we should obviously point that out. There is another story that we heard just now in the news with Viv, and that is that there is a new unofficial road sign that is less than tasteful.
3: Yeah, absolutely. At first, when I read about this, I thought, is it a Purim spill? And then I thought you know, this is awful, is this an anti-Semitic attack? Well, actually, now it's come out that it's a French artist who was behind it, a man named Frank Allais, who said that he came up with an artistic project with warning signs showing a few different type of people. He's got an old woman, he's got a man pushing his wheelchair, he's got a cat, and he's got a Jewish man. How he thinks that this is not offensive, I'm not really sure, he said that he didn't mean to cause any offence. The fact is that it did. It did cause offence and it has caused alarm and it has caused distress. And in these times, should we really be putting pictures of Orthodox Jews inside red triangles at a time when anti-Semitism is on the rise? You know, we have the threat of terrorism and everything else.
0: We're not wishing to dilute what is frankly a very serious Frank-a-lay. story. I see what did there. Sorry, Frank L.A. That's not the way I was going to dilute it. But what I am going to say is that I don't understand sort of when you've got an image that frankly doesn't look like an orthodox Jew, you'd be forgiven for thinking it was actually a silhouette of Charlie Chaplin. It's interesting how people have interpreted it as such. It's probably to do with the location, though, isn't it? Because it was put in Stamford Hill.
4: I think that was the intention of it. His, his artwork was depicting various characters crossing the road. The whole story in a year's time, we'll look back at it and we'll find it quite funny. I think. I mean, th- there's a
0: difference between. Really, you do think people will find it funny eventually? I,
4: I, I think, I think there's a difference between you know a swastika being drawn on the wall and somebody facing an anti-Semitic assault, and somebody insensitively putting up a road sign and everyone getting confused about it and offended by it. I, I, I don't think this is. Now that it's been cleared up, I don't think that this
0: is causing the same amount of distress. But it does beg the question, why pick on the Jewish community and why not any other community?
3: Absolutely. Can you imagine what the response would have been had he depicted a black man inside a red triangle or an Asian woman inside a triangle or a woman wearing a hijab? It's just astounding that he thinks that no one would take offence because it's a Jewish person who perhaps looks like Charlie Chaplin and I don't want to have any say on his artistic talents there. But yes, I mean, it wasn't the best betrayal, perhaps. But still, people did identify it as a Jew, and people were offended, and people were worried. And I think it's more the fact that we are now at a time when people are at their height of fear for anti-Semitic attacks in this country and around the world. So you can't be making jokes like this.
0: Well, let us hope that it was something that with hindsight he regrets, but any odd way. Maybe we'll give them the benefit of the doubt on this one. But that's where we're going to have to leave it for this week. Thank you both very much indeed. Don't forget that you can pick up your copy of the Jewish News every Thursday across London or you can read the e-version online at jewishnews.co.uk. A proposal to fine social media companies for not removing hate speech has been announced. Companies such as Twitter and Facebook could be fined anything up to £40 million should they fail to tackle online hatred. For many years, it has been a question raised by many people worldwide, especially Jews on the receiving end of such vitriol. To discuss this new measure further, I've been speaking to social media expert Karen Lerner from Top Left Design. I started by asking her to explain why tackling online hate has always posed such a challenge.
5: The way I see it, there's two ways that you could tackle online hatred. One is to build an algorithm or a program that searches for certain phrases. And when they see those phrases, they delete them. And the other is to have somebody sitting there and reading everything and deleting things that they can see is classified as hatred. The issue is that with the first one, with the algorithms, is that a computer will not be able to tell exactly whether the hatred is the kind of hatred we all hate, or if it's going to be something where somebody is actually putting hatred against the haters. So there's a lot of gray area and It could create problems for people who just want to use social media normally and would get upset if suddenly their messages started being deleted.
0: So frankly, it boils down to that computers or technology, software, whatever you want to look at it, is just not intelligent enough to recognise what the human eye would.
5: It's based on certain phrases and you could be using those phrases when you're quoting an article, for example. So there's no way that the computer would tell the difference between that phrase in that context or another. Of course, nowadays there's artificial intelligence, which is where the computer learns more and more as it goes on. But it needs to be set to run and somebody needs to keep tweaking and improving it in order for it to learn. Do you
0: think that the the explosion of social media, and by that I mean obviously that the way that everyone seems to have become so dependent on it, do you think that there was ever any foresight and ever any planning that went into it because did people really recognize that social media could be used in such a way as hatred it was never really designed for that purpose and therefore do you think it might have been overlooked
5: so, certainly by some people, but then there'll always be those isolated boffins who will now raise their heads and go, I told you so, I predicted all this, this is what will ha- would have happened and now it's happening. There will be some people who say that, but it never, I don't think anyone had the intention of creating a platform to spread hatred. But
0: all of this though, doesn't it give social media a bad name? Because let's not forget someone like yourself who heavily depends on social media for work purposes. Of course, it can be a good thing.
5: Yeah, I think that it gives, it, it's it. got a lot of positives. Maybe it, it's shown the hatred that is out there, but it's also allowed people to have a voice. And that means that people who have never been able to speak up for themselves now can, and all sorts of ideas can be shared and spread. And even the negative stuff, being able to see it shows us it's out there and allows us to rationally decide how we're going to address it rather than just shutting it down or, or deleting it.
0: With this news in particular that potentially social media companies could be fined anything up to £40 million and beyond if they're not seen to make an attempt at tackling online hatred, how feasible do you think it's going to be to actually police this? Because where's the proof going to come from that those particular companies haven't been trying to tackle it? And furthermore, how are they going to prove that the hatred was hatred in the first place? Is there a lot of, like you said before, a lot of grey areas with
5: this? Do you think it's feasible? I don't think it's ever feasible to completely delete every negative, hateful thing that's out there, nor do I think necessarily it's a good thing, because if you delete one side, then you're shutting down what's out there and already is the truth, and then the other side won't won't know that it's out there. I think that big social media companies can make efforts to show their activities in tackling this, although I don't think they can ever completely shut it all down like Twitter created a whole spectrum of different tools that people can use to report people and and block people. And Facebook can be doing other things similarly. So it is possible to show they're taking measures, but I don't know if they can ever completely eradicate hate talk that's out there.
0: How much of the onus should fall on those who are actually committing the hatred? Because a lot of people say that where social media goes so horribly wrong is the anonymity that it provides to those who are actually using it for hate. Do you think that we'd be looking at a very different image when it comes to social media if those people weren't anonymous and they couldn't hide behind false names?
5: Yes, if there are laws that say that you can't be racist or say hateful things in a public space towards other people then there should be a way to enforce those laws and if you can track people down to their identity then the police can go and and catch them and if they're anonymous it's harder but there's all sorts of mechanisms to to find the identities of people who are doing this. And what
0: would you say maybe to those who are a little bit apprehensive when it comes to the using of social media, maybe they're just starting off, they've never really experienced it before, but they hear conversations like the ones that we're having now, and talking about this scary ethos of hatred online, how would you advise them in terms of if they're just starting on social media, what can they do to be a little more savvy when it comes to using it?
5: It's not like they might think where you log on to social media channels and all you see is horrible hate speech. Most of the time you log on and you're connected with certain people who are like-minded. And Facebook actually filters certain information towards you that, they know, that it knows from the types of people you talk to that you will like. So usually you, get, you only see the side that you believe in. So every, it becomes like a little bubble the the people on the one side see more others like them and vice versa so i don't think that you would necessarily see so much as as there really is out there and it's good to be aware it's good to go on and see for yourself what it's like without getting impulsively angry but just to to read and see what other people are saying and what everybody's different points of view are you don't necessarily have to participate in your converse the conversation until you're comfortable with using those tools
0: Social media expert Karen Lerner talking to me there about tackling online hate crimes. This in light of proposals put forward to fine social media companies such as Facebook and Twitter anything up to £40 million should they fail to help efforts. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Still to come on this edition, Clive Roslin will be here for our Jewish schmooze. Today, Clive and I will be joined by founder of West End Travel, David Siegel, and Jane Goff, Education Coordinator for West London Synagogue. We'll be discussing the potential banning of religious symbols announced by the EU this week. Plus, Diana Toman will be speaking to Leonie Lewis from the Jewish Volunteering Network about their Pesach appeal. But first, comedic composer Alexander Bermanj is about to release a new album, Wit and Whimsy. It boasts a star studded lineup of much loved celebrities and leading musical theatre artists, all performing Alexander's works. To find out more about it, arts editor Kate Fulton has been speaking to Alexander and she started by asking him to tell us what exactly is a comedic composer? What is a comedic
6: composer? I suppose a comedic composer is a composer or a songwriter who writes songs which are designed to make people laugh. So I suppose it's a cross between a songwriter and a stand-up comedian. The main difference, I suppose, is that Instead of standing up, I'm sitting down. I'm at a piano. So I'm a sit-down comedian, I suppose.
7: Do you write the music and the words?
6: Yes. Yes. So, strictly speaking, I'm a a comedic composer and lyricist. Excellent.
7: And just delving back a bit into your background, how did you get here?
6: Well, I owe it all to, or blame it all on, you could say, uh, my parents. They sat me down at a piano when I was very young, encouraged me to have piano lessons. But almost from the moment I first sat at the piano... I was more interested in creating my own compositions than in just recreating the great classics that my my piano teachers used to want me to to write. In terms of this area of my writing though, the the turning point was really when I heard a radio program about the work of the great American satirist Tom Lehrer, who was famous for writing songs like Poisoning Pigeons in the Park or for putting the elements of the periodic table to music. And this just opened my eyes to the way in which songs could be witty and funny and clever. And so in terms of this area of my writing, that was really when all that started.
7: Because most songs you sort of tend to think of is that they're usually quite sad or they're love songs or they're pining on yearning. Exactly.
6: Quite I a th- change. I think that the excitement for me about writing comic songs is that you you literally have no limits to, to the subject of your songs. When you're just writing serious songs, for want of a better word, as, as you rightly say, you're you're very limited. They can be love songs or love songs or (laughs) love songs. But but what I love about writing comedic material is that you know, you can write funny love songs but you can write about anything. You can write about, I love writing about characters about eccentrics, so you can write about them. You can take humorous looks at aspects of everyday life, so I love doing those. You, you've got this vast array of subjects and the world is your oyster.
7: Have you ever been influenced by your Jewish background?
6: Absolutely. I've, I've often written comic songs of a Jewish nature. There are one or two on on the, the current collection, Wit & Whimsy, which is certainly very Jewish. I think one inevitably draws on all aspects of one's personality. So obviously being Jewish, that absolutely comes across in, in some of my comic songs.
7: Was it a big part of your background, your family life?
6: It, it was a big part. I mean, it's it's kind of part of who I am. I certainly identify very much as being Jewish. There's a lot about me which is, is very Jewish. Culturally, I'm extremely Jewish. I was brought up going to synagogue, had a bar mitzvah, did all that, and so yes, it was n- not surprising that that it fed into my writing. I mean, needless to say, not everything that I write about is Jewish themed because there are very, you know, very many other facets to my to my character. But yeah, it, it undoubtedly feeds into into the material that I write, and when I perform live, it, it plays you know it plays quite a considerable role in my in my in my live act.
7: And were you classically trained? You've talked about the, the lyrics and the music, the influence. So you were classically trained. You mentioned the piano.
6: Yes, I, Tell so us a bit I, more. Had, I was classically trained as a pianist. Did all the the exams, and also when I was younger, was also a viola player. So I got my orchestral experience playing playing there. So uh, so yeah. In fact, that's apart from music GCSE, that's the only formal musical training I I ever had. I never had any formal compositional training. Everything that I had really just came through those those piano lessons when i was at school so you
7: went to university presumably you played there and and were active in musical I Events did. There.
6: I did. I wasn't actually studying music. I was studying French and German, but I was doing a lot of music while I was there. I went to Oxford and I was putting on shows that i written because the other area of my work is theatre and i written musicals and, and, and music and songs for plays and all that started when I was at, at Oxford. I, to be honest, I wasn't really writing any material of this nature when I was there. Then I was really focused on theatre and musicals. It was only towards the end of my time in, in Oxford when I heard, heard the radio programme that I mentioned. And it was only after finishing at Oxford that I started writing comic material. But, but music was a huge part of, of what I was doing at, at Oxford. I was almost in more music than I was languages, which was what I was studying.
7: Which brings us on to the, to the, the subject of what I want to talk to you about is really the, this Wit & Whimsy, fabulous title for an album. Oh. Love it, because it's, it's got a sense of gentleness. It's not aggressive, dark humour or, or, or anything... What is Wit and Whimsy?
6: Well, Wit and Whimsy is, I suppose, the very kind of comedy that I try and create. So it's comedy which aspires to being clever, sophisticated, playful, slightly uh, cerebral.
7: So it's not observational.
6: Oh, it it, is is observational, but it's not, you know, it's not crude, it's not cheap, it's not vulgar, it's not obvious. It's, I suppose, what you might call... I was going to say thinking man's comedy. I don't want to make it sound too pretentious because no. there's a lot that is, you know. But the word
7: whimsy be, is a very good word to explain. It's it's playfulness.
6: Yes. It's kind of delight in, in language. And it's just seemed to summarise the kind of topics that I created. So, for example, I mentioned that I loved writing about characters. So there's a character on there, for example, who's a singer who's... Tone deaf. The song is called "I Love to Sing." She thinks she's got the greatest voice in the world. In reality, she can't sing for toffee. There's another song about a train spotter on the London Underground, which lists the under the underground stations. There's another song sung by a girl who's just been dumped by her boyfriend who's run off with her granny.
7: Are you so, singing all these? No.
6: In fact, none of them are performed by me on this on this album. What I did, although I have performed a number of them live before, what I really wanted to do on this album is to celebrate some of this country's great performers. So we've got a few on there who I think can justifiably be called national treasures go on tell as, us a little uh, well Miriam Margulies is on the album Christopher Biggins Nigel Planer we've got a few who will be well known to television viewers and
7: they're all singers as well as actors
6: absolutely they're all singers as well as actors and so even the people on the album who aren't household names are artists who are currently playing the leading roles in mamma mia wicked jersey boys beautiful or half a sixpence most of them on the album come from theater and they're all highly respected theater artists
7: how did you choose who you wanted to, to sing your songs
6: well it was a combination of factors, really. Some I'd worked with through my own theatre ventures. They'd been in musicals of mine or they'd appeared as guest artists of mine in my solo shows. Some of them, the producer of the album, the great Mike Dixon, had worked with and brought on board. And some we just thought were right for specific songs. And we went to them with the songs. We said, Do you fancy recording this song? We told them the rest of the lineup. And fortunately, they all said yes.
7: And from the album, I understand there is a performance.
8: Tell That's us about that.
6: right. Well, the album comes out on the 31st of March, and then on the 30th of April April, we are doing the the tie-in live performance at the Hippodrome in London's West End, and that's where I, as well as artists from the album and some special guests, will be uh, spreading the the wit and the whimsy uh, live. So it's like a cabaret, to... yeah. It's 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 like a cabaret. So it's it's not got the formality of a concert, but it's going to be you know classy and sophisticated, but just gives a chance to me and to many of the performers from, from the album and some of the others to to, to recreate th- this material live because there's something about this kind of writing that just is magical when performed live and you've, you've got a room full of people who hopefully find it funny and there's something that's very special when you're, you're in that environment and you're surrounded by all the
0: artists and a big audience who are all hopefully chuckling at the same things. Comedic composer and lyricist Alexander Bermange talking to arts editor Kate Fulton there about his forthcoming album, Wit and Whimsy, which will be released on the 31st of March. For more information and to get tickets to the Hippodrome event, then you can always go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. In just a moment we will be this week's Schmooze. Remember, we live stream the Schmooze on our Facebook page every Thursday evening from 7pm Greenwich Mean Time. The address is coming up, but it gives you the chance to comment along as the discussion unfolds, and we'll try and read out some of those comments as and when we get them. It's just another way that you can share your Jewish views with us. Speaking of which, if you would like to get involved, we would love to hear your Jewish views. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash jewishviews or on Twitter, we are at jewishviewsuk. And of course, you can find all that information at our website, jewishviews.co.uk. Now, can you believe Pesach is only a matter of weeks away? What are you doing for it? Going to Israel, maybe? If the answer to that is yes, have you considered volunteering? Well, that's exactly what Jewish Volunteering Network is hoping you'll do. They're appealing to members of the community who are travelling to the Jewish state for Passover to take part in a number of voluntary activities. Community editor Diana Toman has been finding out more about it for us by speaking to Leonie Lewis from JVN. Diana started by asking Leonie if it's the first time this sort of appeal has been attempted.
9: No, it's not the first time we've ever done it, but I, and I'm not sure whether it's the first time anyone's ever done this sort of thing. However, it's the first time we've put this together in a very structured and partnership way with charities in Israel. Last year, we actually had a small trial when a few families rang up and said, do you have any opportunities in Israel for us over the Pesach holidays? Because it also fell with quite a lot of week in between where people could do something. We hadn't really thought about it, but then we realized we have about 30% of the 350 charities online online at JVN's and on our website, they're Israel based. They have an office in London or across the country here in the UK, but their home is in Israel. And we thought, well, maybe we should do something more to make it more significant where people actually want to volunteer. So last year, we thought, let's pull out a couple of these charities. I think we had Emunah, Sarel, we had an eco project in the Negev, and we put a half page advert in the Jewish news around about this time, March last year. And we couldn't believe it, but we had about 10, which doesn't sound enormous, but 10 different families phoned up and asked for more details and information. So we thought there's obviously a bit of a thirst and engagement and exciting idea here and a bit of a nub of an idea I should say and we then did it more strategically so this year we called on several of our charities who are registered as members on the JVN site, a couple who aren't and said do you have anything where families could go and engage and enjoy an experience together volunteering where they don't necessarily have to pay for the pleasure of doing it but they actually can contribute by giving time and lo and behold we were very fortunate that a lot of them came back and said we'd love to see people we'd love to promote what we do and we've tied up with several of them and I'm hoping with it being more strategic and thought- thoughtful in that way that we will get more people engaged in volunteering.
1: We've got families going for perhaps a week two weeks over PESA. how much can they actually do in that period of time? The idea of families
9: came from the thrust by government over the last couple of years, of something they called intergenerational volunteering, where you have a grandparent and a kid who has been serviced and supported by their grandparents, and they buddy up, and we thought it was important for the Jewish community to also demonstrate that grandparents often look after kids and that at a time at Pesach you really do talk about different generations. And many of families we know in are lucky enough to have a accommodation or live out in Israel during holiday times and go with their whole family to celebrate Pesach. So it made sense to us to call it a family opportunity where the mum or dad could go but the grandparent or aunt and uncle could also go and where little Jamie or little Sarah can also go and play and have fun and do something that can involve everybody at a different level a different meaningful stage of their lives and you'd be surprised I don't know Diana but I think you'd be very surprised to know that even volunteering in this country making a difference can be done in in a short space of time and the idea of the projects that we have are generally half a day or a day in Israel and that's what we think the difference can be. What can you
1: do in half a day well I suppose it depends on which charity you're actually volunteering for but what can you do what can let me say I went to stay with a relative of mine in in Israel and I thought right I've got a day to spare what what could I actually do?
9: we've seen by the opportunities that we have on our website and people's responses here that the opportunities which have something very physical or active are the ones which are often quite popular yes we do have plenty where people can go and talk to elderly people and residents in care homes but for the youngsters themselves to actually do something where they're picking something or cleaning something or digging is often something that engages. I don't know why I'd sooner be sitting having a cup of coffee with my grandparent in in a care home than than I would be digging. But nevertheless, we have a range of opportunities, obviously both here in, in the UK, but for Israel this year, where there's a lot of physical activity engaged some of the projects like the charity Leket we're partnering with it is the largest volunteering food bank I think in the Middle East now they have 55,000 people volunteering in Israel and they really value overseas volunteers in one day or in half a day people can collect buckets of fruit from the orchards people can collect potatoes and the sense of achievement by having filled your bucket up with potatoes or apples or oranges depending on the season is immense and that's why it doesn't matter if little James or Sarah I don't know who they are by the way they come along and they collect with their grandparents or their mum or their dad or their aunt or uncle because they can all have a family container they can go out to the field and they can just putting some stuff in together and not eating the products if they can on route would be helpful but that makes a big difference similarly there are other charities where in two hours in Youth Aliyah they have several villages and they're looking for families but also particularly youngsters who are happy to play a game of football with some of the residents and some of those young people who need a little bit more support and mates together and so simple things like that and a game of football can doesn't have to be 10 minutes or 90 minutes it's the idea is to do something but utilizing building on friendship and doing something that's often physical
1: most of these things that you've been talking about would not involve any particular training would they
9: Correct that's part of the whole thing you don't need to have they would protect everybody in terms of any form of legislation and uh, people might be shown how not to put the wrong things in the wrong packages and that sort of thing but generally it's just reliant on just being ourselves who we are and wanting to give some time and in a friendly and happy way and I think that's what the charities are looking for.
0: Leonie Lewis, the director of Jewish Volunteering Network, speaking to community editor Diana Toman there about why they are appealing for members of the community to volunteer in Israel over Pesach. For more information, including a link to the list of charities that JVN work with, then you can go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk.
10: You're listening to The Jewish Views and this is The Jewish Schmooze, the part of the show where studio guests join me, Clive Roslin, to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the programme so far. And joining Phil, Dave and me today is founder of West End Travel, David Siegel, and Jane Goff, Education Coordinator for West London Synagogue. The subject is based on what we heard in the news of the Viv a little earlier on a ruling by the European Union, which allows firms to stop employees wearing religious clothes and symbols, has been condemned by Jewish leaders. Now the question is, where does this leave not only our Muslim brothers and sisters, but the millions of European Jews who also display religious symbols as part of their daily lives? Jane, let's start with you. Mm. You always proudly wear a kippah, how would you feel if you were told, maybe not by West London Synagogue, that you weren't allowed to wear it anymore?
8: I think it's a really difficult question to answer because I think firstly I'd feel outraged, then I'd feel I was it was my liberty, freedom, and I'd probably go into a real paddy about it. It's a direct response, really, I feel, to the hijab and the complete covering of Muslim women. And I think that's what it feels like it is to me. If you're serving the public, I think there is an element where there is restriction. I mean, I don't like being in a library or in a shop where the person who's serving me, I cannot see their face. But
10: no, actually, Muslim women on the whole don't. That's the same as an orthodox Jewish woman wearing a scheitel. They don't cover their faces. The religious bit is only to cover their their hair.
0: But and how many Orthodox Jewish women do you see wearing a scheitel working in a public shop as it were, if you see what I mean?
10: If you go and sit into certain parts of London where there are very kosher Jewish shops, you see them. And David's just put on a kippah just to prove that he's happy to wear a kippah too.
11: Correct. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Indeed. I think, Clive, the situation, this issue goes far, far deeper. It goes back over very many years. You remember, for instance, the situation with this girl who worked for British Airways. She was uh, told that she could not wear her cross. She was a British Egyptian resident of this country, worked for British OS for many years. And all of a sudden, the political correctness told them, sorry, we don't know who you're going to offend, but surely you're going to offend someone. You can't wear it. Now, she wouldn't have it. And she took them to task. If I'm not mistaken, she went to court. And I believe she actually won. The issue. Good but it, for her. It, uh, absolutely good for her. Look, I run an office. There was no way, okay, we're a small business. We're not, you know, British Airways, or ICI or IBM. But nonetheless, there's no way that I would ever say to anyone in our office what they can wear, what they can't wear. You've even seen the stuff this week about girls wearing high heels, being yeah, told huh. by, the, by their bosses, mm-hmm. this is what you have to have to wear. Yes, men probably prefer women in high heels, but I wouldn't dare. In my place to tell any of our staff this is what you have to wear. I'm glad
10: you've just said that because I've just suddenly remembered and I've (coughs) I've forgotten it. I knew a, a woman who was a member of the Salvation Army and she did another job. She worked voluntarily for the Salvation Army and when she was doing Salvation Army things she wore Salvation Army dress and she got into serious trouble one day which went into work wearing her Salvation Army dress. Which is absolute nonsense, in my opinion. It applies to whether you're Jewish, Christian, Muslim, whatever. Correct. Should
11: you wear something, according to your religion, you should be allowed to do so. I think so, but you know it's a very toxic issue. Yeah. And it's endemic, it's all over the place. And there's certain places where I will gladly wear my kippah, I wear it at home. Mm. But there's certain places when I go to Arsenal, there's no way would I walk there and wear a kippah on my head.
0: Ah, oh, but that's not because it dictated to you. It's probably Correct. out fear, that isn't is it? Yeah, yeah. That is
11: thats my choice. Mm. But the issue is, and you can see it all over the place. In France, they've told them don't wear it. Yeah. But they've told them for different reasons because they've told them in Paris, be aware of the massive Muslim community. Don't make yourself pretty obvious. And I think it's not a problem that's going to go away, Clive.
0: I wonder if this works the other way as well. I mean, let's take someone who's an atheist, who doesn't believe in religion at all. If they proudly display a T-shirt, something along the lines of, <coughs> let's just say, there is no such thing as God, for example. That's maybe a T-shirt that an atheist would wear. i just declare right here and now that's absolutely not something I would wear. But... I wonder if it would work the same way, whether or not that in time there would be a ban on something like that as well. No, if it's all about offence or religion potentially causing a potential threat to somebody.
10: Yeah, that's that's quite different. I mean, what? wearing a shirt which says there is no such thing as God is being insulting to any religion which believes in God. And therefore, you, you've got to be tolerant. Even if you're an atheist, you've got to be
0: tolerant of other people's religions. But there will be some people such as atheists who do find the concept of religion offensive. I can't say I understand why they do, but they clearly do for whatever reason. Mm. And if that's the case, and we are saying that we need to be mindful of being tolerant and accepting to everybody's perspective, well, maybe there is something in the argument about wearing a religious symbol that does maybe offend is too strong a word but it does rub people up the wrong way and maybe we have to be all-encompassing somehow what is insulting about a woman
10: wearing am uh, sorry i forget what it's called the muslim women well a hijab okay. if a woman is wearing that there is a woman who is a very good broadcaster she's a very good news reporter and presenter on channel four who on screen wears one. And what does that matter? Nobody complains about that.
11: You're absolutely right. And Mm. if you're in a hospital and heaven forbid something's wrong with you and the nurse who's taking care of you happens to be wearing one of those, you'd be extremely grateful to her, notwithstanding that she's wearing a veil. Conversely, if you remember Jack Straw in his constituency, I believe it was in Blackburn, refused, if I'm not mistaken, to see people, uh, residents in his surgery, in his Member of Parliament surgery, if they were covered up. And there were judges in the High Court, not in the High Court, in in the Crown Courts, who said, unless, if they're coming in covered up with a veil, if we can come to that, Ah, I don't want them standing in front of me.
10: That's different, because in court, he was talking about Muslim women who were... Veils, so all you can see are the eyes. But you speak to any religious Muslim, and I know some, and they've told me as such that that is not part of the religion. It's covering the head, but not covering the face. Which,
8: Mm. which I think is just like wearing a kippah. You know, if that's what it's. What what I'm talking about is when you go into a public area and they're completely covered. I find it difficult because I'd rather see the face of the person that was serving me. But I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I don't think it should be banned because surely I have to look at me to, f- to see why I feel so uncomfortable around it. Where I work in West London, it's completely... The women, a local women, it's completely London, from head to toe.
11: Yeah, you're probably the odd one out there.
8: I am, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think at the bottom line is, can you actually stop somebody from wearing either whether it's religiosity or just the fact that is a tradition in their family.
11: You can't stop them wearing it, but and I think you'll find that there's... Uh, offensive is the wrong word. You can't stop them wearing it, but you, there's generally a distaste for people turning up wearing stuff like that. Mm, mm. And, and that's not going away. And likewise, as, as Jews, we have to be very sensitive because we expect people to be sensitive to us. Yeah, yeah. We have to be sensitive to them, and we really try very hard, but society takes care of many of these issues.
0: But you see, I find myself between a bit of a rock and a hard place on this. I mean, I know that with most issues I'm normally on the fence, but this one I really am, because I feel that in some way part of me thinks that if someone wants to display a religious (coughs) symbol, well, then who is anyone to say, no, you can't wear that religious symbol, that's not fair, that's not right, it's their prerogative. (coughs) However, at the same time, there's another part of me that thinks that Take it back to school days, for example. Imagine wearing a school uniform. What was a school uniform supposed to represent above everything else? Yes, obviously, it was supposed to be a symbol of that particular school you went to. But it was also supposed to represent uniformity. Yes. It was and supposed equality. Equality. Discipline. That everyone is yeah. equal. No one is yeah. better than Bequality. anyone else. Yeah. And therefore, I can't help but wonder whether or not, as soon as you start making exceptions in the workplace for people who want to wear religious regalia... Yeah that why is it okay just because they say it's in the name of religion that they can wear something, but let's just say someone has a policy at a company that doesn't permit tattoos to be shown. Just Mm. for example, Mm. why is it okay in the name of religion to say, yes, you can wear that, but in the name of personal choice, you wouldn't be allowed to say wear a tattoo?
10: I struggle with that. Surely the answer to that is very, very simple. It's because there is so much, sadly, so much anti- semitism so much anti-muslim feeling in in this country that that is why people are complaining about it not because for any other reason that's why it's an exception for the ba hostess who was wearing a cross <coughs> round her neck that was a great exception usually nobody complains about somebody wearing a cross mm. round the mm. their neck
0: ah oh, but that might stem from the fact that primarily i know that london is very multicultural but primarily we have to respect the fact that the uk as it stands is a christian country let's be honest and that's potentially why a crucifix around the neck is not quite still as unfamiliar to say a hijab around Mm. the head or a kippah on the Mm. head would be
11: it's a big issue of sensitivity and we as jews are highly sensitive we're very sensitive about anti-Semitism. We love to hear any compliments about Jews, mm. however small, however limited. If I go to Berlin and I make a speech and I say Guten Abend, nobody's going to applaud like crazy. But if someone from there goes to Israel and says Shalom, the whole auditorium mm. goes mad. Mm. What a lovely man. Because we latch on to anything which, where we feel they like us. When someone makes a very nice comment to me and he's non-Jewish, I probably tell my wife.
8: Oh, Look what what the
11: guy said. I'm happy about it.
8: Yeah, I know. I mean, is that really true? Is that, I mean, I know you're talking the truth, but that's really startled me because I've not, maybe it's because I'm a new Jew that I don't experience (laughs) that, you know? Where were you
11: before? uh, Yeah. I love the expression, a new Jew. That's really, You you work in a Jewish environment. I
8: do, but it's, yeah, I, I. I think it's really interesting and it's given me a lot... I shall now think about that as I'm going about my daily business.
11: Well, I, I, I think it's important. We we have a responsibility. Yeah. We have a responsibility to behave. We have to not to say that we have to be one step better than everybody no, else. but, there but We is have a... to be conscious of what may otherwise be said behind our backs. Yeah. And I try and avoid that as and, best as I can.
8: And is that to do with this idea of being really conscious of the idea of repairing the world that what you say actually ripples on to some
11: extent yes on the other hand i very rarely come across anti-semitism but when you only have to pick up any of the jewish papers it's there on every page
0: just coming back to the discussion ever so slightly more ben has made a fantastic comment on facebook here and a very very good point He says, he makes the comparison, what has the Catholic Church said? Because nuns' clothing is obviously very close to a hijab. And would we be having this discussion if it was involving nuns and saying that they weren't allowed to wear, obviously, their head coverings? Mm. What a fascinating point. It's absolutely
10: true. And nuns have been going around wearing all these clothes for years and nobody's ever said a word. So why shouldn't a Muslim woman wear... I'm sorry, I keep forgetting what
0: it's called. A hijab. A hijab, yeah. But, but of course, then the difference is, I think, and this could be one of the difference, just sort of thinking about that argument, this is the first reaction that I've got anyway, is that nuns obviously very typically live a very recluse life. And therefore, you wouldn't necessarily see a nun fronting a television report. You wouldn't necessarily see a nun working in a shop. Do you see what I mean? They would so live, they are they'd live less, in a convent and they yeah. keep it to themselves. Yeah. It's not necessarily the right or the wrong attitude to have, but I suspect that that's got a lot yeah. to do with it. It's very different when you start... Not, dare I say, enforcing religion on other people, but maybe just suggesting religion to other people that yeah. might be a bit yeah.
10: different Unfortunately that's all we're going to have to leave it because our time is up but my thanks to our guests founder of West End Travel David Siegel and Jane Goff Education Coordinator for West London Synagogue Please do feel free to share your Jewish views with us You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash jewishviews or on Twitter, we are at JewishViewsUK. And time now for our rabbinic thought for the week. And this time it comes from Rabbi Jeremy Lawrence from Kinloss
12: United Synagogue. This week's Parsha is Parshat Kitisat, which tells the tragic story of the golden calf. As you remember, Moses was up Mount Sinai collecting the Ten Commandments, and the children of Israel, insecure in his absence, prevailed upon Aaron to collect gold in order that they could build what became the Golden Calf. God is so angry that he threatens to bury the entire people and start afresh, a new nation with Moses as their father, and a lesser man might have seized this cavod. Moses' vigorous advocacy for the Israelites illustrates his passion and compassion as a leader, something we often lose sight of amidst all the drama of the miracles and all the details of the laws. Their dialogue atop Sinai teaches us many valuable lessons. Once Moses had persuaded God not to destroy the people, God responds, I shall guide them to the promised land, but I shall send an angel to lead them in my place, for they are a stiff-necked people, and I might yet destroy them on the way. God would keep close, but not too close. The response of the children of Israel to this is that they go into mourning. They didn't want an angel, they wanted God an amazing negotiation ensues with Moses not pleading for mercy, but pressing God for concessions. Make known to me your ways in order that I can better understand you, and recognise that this nation is your people. God reassures Moses, my presence will go with you. Not content, Moses challenges God further. If your presence does not go along, then do not bring us forward from here. The chutzpah of it how could Moses begin to believe that God would not make good on his promise to lead? And again, God reassures Moses, even this will I do. Still no thanks. Moses challenges God one more time. Show me now your glory. And with this, God promises that his goodness will pass before Moses for Moses to see his attributes. Hashem, Hashem, kel Rachum VeChanun, the Lord God, merciful and compassionate slow to anger, abundant in kindness and truth. This is a remarkable and compassionate revelation from a God who had been pushed to the limits. Previously, we had seen God as strict in justice, jealous and angry. Now God is revealed as merciful, compassionate and forgiving. What catalyzes the transformation? Two things. One, Moses' humble love for his people, and secondly, Moses' chutzpah in advocating their cause. Fundamentally, Moses appreciated how important it was that God's presence be imminent and not remote or delegated. The children of Israel needed to feel that God was close. They needed to know that Moses was walking with God and not as an independent operator. It had to be clear that God himself was with them and that they had been forgiven. The crisis had started because Moses had been away and the people had felt abandoned. Moses demands that the relationship not continue as a frosty distance, but as a warm journey together. How often are fights and squabbles end with one side asserting the moral high ground and demanding that the other follow with blind and unfeeling adherence. Moses teaches that redemption comes with rapprochement, when we show tenacious love for each other and open our hearts with compassion.
0: And I don't believe that there isn't one person listening right now who doesn't think that what Rabbi Lawrence has just said doesn't apply to them, me included. Thank you very much, dear Rabbi Jeremy Lawrence from Kinloss United Synagogue for our Thought for the Week. And that's all the Jewish views we have time for. Thanks to our guests, Karen Lerner from Top Left Design, talking about policing online hatred. To Alexander Bermange, don't forget his album, Wit and Whimsy, comes out on the 31st of March. The only Lewis, if you would like to volunteer over Pesach, please do look at our website. Thanks also to the other contributors and, of course, to you at home for listening. And we mustn't forget the team, including our producers, Adam Bradley and Sue Greenberg. You can always listen to the most recent edition of The Jewish Views by visiting our website, jewishviews.co.uk, and you'll also find the option to listen again to all previous episodes as well. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News and is part recorded at the Studios of Jewish Care in London. I'm Phil Dave. Do make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.